Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Well, those of you who have been coming to Gateway only a month, I I am the pastor of the church. I, uh, I, we've got some amazing staff members. I, I'm, we're so blessed. We have a full staff. Uh, we're not looking for anyone, and God has blessed us with incredible staff. And, and we're so blessed to have guys who are able to share the pulpit with me. And, and uh, Jeff did an amazing job with his series that he did from start to finish and planned it. And then uh, Nick is a great communicator as well that works with our young people. So I'm thankful for those guys and uh, thankful for them uh, giving me a little break and and, uh, appreciate them very much. Uh, Nick started for us this series uh, in his words. We're, We're looking at the words of Christ and the events of his life leading up to his resurrection. And uh, this, uh, today we're going to be talking about Gethsemane, and then Friday night uh, in our 7 o'clock service we'll be talking about the crucifixion, and then of course next Sunday we'll be dealing with the resurrection, and what a glorious time that will be. You know, Jesus, Jesus gives us an intimate look into his heart in Gethsemane, into his struggle. I mean, he, he bears his soul not only before Holy Father, but before us. Um, The only reason we know about that struggle, you see, he was by himself. He he had the disciples, but he left them in a different part of the garden. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is absolutely one of my favorite places to be uh, when I go and visit Israel, uh, is to go there knowing what took place there, that what we're going to look at today knowing the struggle that happened there. And that the reason we know about that struggle is because Jesus obviously told his disciples sometime after the resurrection. So in that 40-day period, maybe they just asked him. They said, what was it really like? You got to remember, they slept through the whole thing. And uh, so they, they didn't hear anything. So Jesus had to have told them. And they probably had that moment of saying, I'm sorry, I didn't stay awake. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you when you really needed us. I'm sorry I wasn't there to pray as you asked. There there are three words given in the New Testament that connect to the sufferings and the death of Jesus. Jesus. There is Gethsemane, which we're going to look at today. There's Gabbatha. We'll come back to that one. And then there's Golgotha, where the crucifixion happened. These words are the names of the places where Jesus suffered during Holy Week. And we're in that Holy Week. At Gethsemane, he suffered at the hands of Satan. At Gabbatha, he suffered at the hands of sinners, of man. In fact, in John chapter 19, it says, And when they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. And then Pilate sat on the judgment seat 
on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. So that's where Jesus suffered at the hands of sinners. And then at Golgotha, Calvary, that's where Jesus suffered at the hands of God the Father. Maybe you weren't expecting me to say that. Maybe you were thinking it was at the hands of the Roman soldiers who drew, drove the nails into his hands and feet or the, sword, the spear into his side. Maybe you thought he was suffering at the hands of those who jeered at him and spat upon him. But it was at Calvary that the wrath, God's full wrath, was unleashed upon Jesus because he had become sin on your behalf and my behalf. In Gethsemane, Jesus felt the full impact of Satan's attack. Jesus, you know, he, he always existed, right? He's always been there. Um, and he was there before Lucifer, who later became Satan. In fact, he created Lucifer. Now, how do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us in John 1, 3, God created everything through him, everything. And nothing was created except through him, which in my book, that would mean the angels as well. And if he created the angels, that means he created Lucifer. Now, the Bible gives us only a few hints of Lucifer in the scripture. It doesn't tell us much. Uh, so we can only assume that his creation was by Jesus based on scripture. There are a few hints about his downfall, but not much. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 10, 18, yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. But we have very clear teaching of his ultimate demise and his limited power and authority. So Jesus created Lucifer and Jesus will completely destroy Satan. Satan actually attempted to murder Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, he wanted to shed his blood there so his blood could not be shed on the cross. Because he knew if his blood was shed on the cross that then man's sins would have been atoned and Satan would have lost. Well, Satan actually lost in the garden. That's where the final decision was made. We're going to see as we walk through the journey of Jesus in the garden, when he comes out of that garden, he is settled. It's a done deal. He, he's determined. Nothing's going to deter him at that point. So the battle was won in Gethsemane. Satan may have tempted the Lord to back away from the cross, but Jesus, praise God, was totally submissive to the Father's will. Jesus defeats Satan in the garden and he sealed his defeat at Golgotha. So as we read through scripture, we're going to see that the supper 
was finished with his disciples, his last time with them in a meal before the crucifixion. Jesus took his disciples minus one across a brook, through a valley, into a quiet place of seclusion in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it was in a garden that the first man, Adam, fell through yielding to the wicked one. And now in the second garden, the second man, Jesus, conquered the one who brought defeat in the first garden. And Jesus conquered by yielding to God the Father. So this garden, it became a place of great heaviness. It was a place of entire resignation where Jesus totally resigned from his will for the sake of the Father's will. It was a place of heartless betrayal by one of his own disciples. In Matthew 26, we begin the journey in Gethsemane. It says, then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means oil press. And we're going to see how that was very meaningful and appropriate for Jesus. And then Jesus said, sit here while I go over there to pray. So he left the largest part of the disciples in one place of the garden. And then he took three more a little deeper. In that garden, Jesus was going to be pressed by all that hell could place upon him. And he still conquered with you and me on his mind. He still defeated Satan because we were on his heart. Gethsemane, that pressing the deepest part of Jesus. The Bible says in verse 37, he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. Those three was, seemed to always be with Jesus at very significant times, like the Mount of Transfiguration. And then it says, and he became anguished, anguished and distressed. Strong words. I mean, if you became anguished, that's, that's an that's a strong emotion. The, the core of your being. He was weighed down with a feeling of uncertainty and acute distress. The heaviness of the spirit that laid on him, none of us can truly comprehend that weight that was upon him. We, we just... We just really cannot. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's past to follow our own. Even as believers, we still do that, right? We leave God's path for our, for our own desires and our own path. We decide. 
Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. Just a few words in that sentence. The magnitude of that one sentence. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You know, I I carried the burdens of my sins. (laughs) Even though Jesus forgave me, Satan loves to remind me, right? Does he do that with you? I mean, how many times do you think, oh, I wish I could go back to that one horrible decision and redo that? How often does Satan love to accuse you of a past thing, a past transgression? And we yield to that and we feel guilty, we feel horrible, and we say to ourselves, God can never use somebody like me. We, we do it all the time. And, and it's a burden to carry your sins. Now imagine if you had to carry the sins of everybody in this room, the sins they've committed since birth and the sins that they will commit that have not been committed yet. You would say, I don't want that. Mine are enough. Uh, Just keep stretching out from there. What if you had to carry the sins of everybody in our country? Uh, You say, I can't fathom that. What if you just had to carry your sins and the sins of President Putin right now? Would you want to have to carry those sins? That wickedness, that wicked behavior, that destruction, killing of innocent women and children, would you want to have to carry that? What if you had to carry the sins of the whole world? Jesus did that. God put on Jesus the sins that began with Adam and Eve, starting with their sin. He put that on Jesus. And every sin that has been committed up till now, he put it on Jesus. And every sin that is yet to be committed, he put on Jesus. I mean, every sin that Jesus took on himself of yours were all future sins, right? Because you didn't exist. But he knew you. He knew all about you. He planned a life for you. And he took on your sins because the Father put them there. What a burden. And, you know, and the other extreme is we can take our sins so lightly. I mean, it, it can be a place of intense suffering or we just get glib about it. Oh, well. Have you ever gotten so intense about your sins that you just grieve before holy God and, but then thank Jesus for dying for those sins? I mean, that's where we need to always end, that we're thanking Jesus that he took on those sins and I don't have to face a holy God because of my sins. So the Garden of Gethsemane was a place of intense suffering. 
The sorrow was not a result of fear. Satan did not fear death. I mean, uh, Jesus did not fear death. And, and it was not a place of sorrow or regret or failure, but it was a place of pure love and sympathy for us. He was in deep sympathy with the holiness of God and the helplessness of man, of you. May your eyes and my eyes be open to see and our hearts touched to appreciate the beautiful sadness that Jesus took. Verse 38, he told them, my soul is crushed, crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and help keep watch with me. I mean, Jesus was saying to his disciples, listen, all of humanity is in the balance. What occurs over the next hour or so determines everything. The victory or defeat will be here in this place. And I'm crushed and I'm grieved. Satan literally tried to kill him. Shed his blood there instead of on the cross. Jesus was surrounded by grief to the degree that it threatened his life. He nearly died. Luke, who was a physician, is the one that records these events. And he adds into there that Jesus sweat such drops that seemed like blood indicating that maybe he was close to death right then. In fact, Luke also records that God wound up sending an angel to minister to Jesus. Not to Jesus God, but to Jesus the man. Jesus the man was near death. And God sent an angel to minister to him, to strengthen him for what was to come. You know, sin brought a curse upon the earth and upon you and me. And in Gethsemane, Jesus laid upon a cursed ground in sweat and sorrow and won a victory. He won a victory over sin and he won a victory over the curse of sin. That hour in his greatest need, he wanted his best friends praying for him. Verse 39, Jesus went a little further and he bowed his face to the ground. That means he, he was probably prostrate on the ground. He said, my father, if it is possible... Let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And then he quickly says, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This had become a, pla a place of agonizing prayer. You see, the content of that cup, it, it was not suffering, it was not death, but it was our sins. 
The cup is often a symbol of divine wrath against sin in the Old Testament. In fact, the very next day, Christ would bear the sins and he would receive the fullness of divine wrath for those sins. Verse 40, it says, he, he returned to the disciples and he found them asleep. He said to Peter, uh, now why did he pick on Peter? Well, Peter, he'd already kind of said, you're, you're going to be the leader. You're, you're the one that's going to lead this crowd. He said, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you, now in the Greek that word you is plural, so now he's addressing all three of them. So he said to Peter, couldn't you watch even for one hour? Now you guys keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Boy, I can relate to that one. When it comes to sin, right? Your spirit says, no, no, don't. And your body says, yes, yes, yes. And Jesus gives us a formula right here. He says, when you're dealing with this kind of praying, you need to watch and you need to pray if you want to have victory. So you see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was also a place of loneliness. The flesh is weak. This tenderness of his plea is touching. Christ himself was well aware and acquainted with the feeling of human struggles, yet he was without sin. And at that very moment, he was locked in a struggle against human passion. And yet, not yield to that passion because he wanted to subject himself, subjugate himself completely to the divine will of the Father. Have you ever prayed that way? You know, I know how we pray. God, here's what I'm going to do. Now bless it. But how often have you gone to God the Father and said, God, Here's my desires, here's my passions, but I'm setting them aside because I only want your will because your will is all that matters. You see, listen to this. If Jesus had been like you and me in the garden, we would have no hope. He would have followed his passion and would have wanted to have avoided that hideous thing called sin that he knew would cause a division, a separation from God the Father that has never been ever known in all of eternity. The very next day, Jesus would bear the sins of us all. Then Jesus, he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. 
And he said, can't, you, know, you got to remember this thing about Peter. He said, Peter, can't you watch even for one hour? Uh, Peter's the same guy who just told Jesus, I will be there with you. I will never forsake you. I'll die for you. I mean, he's the guy that said that. And, and in fact, he's the same guy that Jesus said, yeah, well, guess what? By tomorrow, you're going to betray me three times. And so this is the guy that was all amped up. He was ready to go to war with Jesus and for Jesus, and he couldn't stay awake. He was more concerned about his rest and sleep than, I guess he just didn't understand the battle that was going on. I want to tell you, there's a battle going on for the souls of a lot of your friends and family members. You got friends and you got family members who are not saved and there's a battle going on for them. Are you putting yourself on the ground before holy God? Begging for their souls? I, I took the 12th grade guys to lunch recently. Just spent a little time with them. There was about a dozen of them. And um, I always ask them, I said, tell me how I can pray for you. And I keep a list and I pray for them. And I text them periodically, ask them how I can pray, you know, how the, how the prayers are being answered. And I got to this one guy and he said, pray for my family. He said, I'm the, I'm the only believer. Wow. I'm sitting there going, he gets it. And... Um, he had prayed to receive Christ, and, and so he asked me, he said, hey, all of my family is going to come into town for my graduation. Would you baptize me uh, the day after my graduation so it'll be a witness to my family? I said, wow, yeah, absolutely. I don't care how cold the lake is. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that for you, my friend. There's somebody passionate. Uh, how, how are you doing in that area? About your lost friends? I mean, we, we struggle just to even invite them to church, and, but to weep before holy God for their souls? Jesus taught us a lot about some serious praying here. A lot. Verse 42, then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus was saying, if there's no plan B and there's only plan A, then I'm ready. When do you go before God and say, God, this life, I only got one of them, and I'm giving it to you. I want your plan A for my life. Because my plans, well, they're selfish. They're about my desires. And I want to set my desires aside, and I want your desires for me. You know, th there's no implication here in this passage that there was a division or a conflict between God the Father and God the Son. Rather, it, to me, it graphically reveals how Christ in his hum humanity voluntarily 
surrendered to the will of the Father in all things precisely so that there would be no conflict between the divine will and the divine desires. So Jesus set aside that desire, that one set of desires and replaced it with another. And that's the pattern you and I need to follow. God, this is my desire, but it's meaningless. I want to replace it with your desires because you made me. You planned out my life. You know what's best for me. You know what you want to do through me. Verse 43. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they could not keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. And then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's get going. Look, my betrayer is here. So a third time he prayed, and a third time he prayed the same prayer, and a third time the disciples slept on. You know, their sleeping and their resting was in stark contrast to the agonizing and the praying, praying to the point of exhaustion that was going on just a few yards away. Jesus was lonely, though his disciples were nearby. They were useless in their intercession. But Jesus was determined to follow the Father's will regardless of the cost. When Jesus returned to the disciples the third time, he awakened them with the news of the betrayer that was coming. So it's like he was saying, it's too late to pray with me. Things are about to happen. Now, don't believe for a moment that Jesus was helpless, for he was not. The day will come when it will be too late to pray for someone's salvation. The day they pass away, they pass into eternity, then it's too late. Unlike some faiths that would tell you that you could pray for people after they die, that's just not true. There's no biblical evidence for that. So we have to take the opportunity of praying very, very serious and not miss that opportunity. You have friends that are in desperate need of your prayers, spiritually, even physically. Is it worth me setting aside some my time of entertaining myself and doing the things I like doing to spend time praying. Back in the mid-70s, I was in my first church. And um, I was a youth pastor. I was basically a youth worker. And God just always knitted my heart to certain people. And there was this one young man that he knitted our hearts together and, and I just wanted to help disciple him. He had a paper route 
where he would get up like at four or five in the morning to deliver papers. And, and I told him one Sunday, I said, hey, I, I'm going I'm to come help you deliver papers. And he said, what? I said, yeah, I want to just come hang out with you. And because, uh, you know, if you get up five o'clock in the morning, and go help somebody deliver papers, you're saying something. I did it once. Um, and, uh, but I discipled him through high school. We stayed in touch through college and I just continued to mentor him and have been since. Um, God, he was an amazing athlete. He played soccer in college. Uh, then he was on a bas- basketball team uh, with Campus Crusade that traveled around the world and uh, sharing the gospel. Uh, he was just a great athlete. Um, his sons, he has a 12th grader uh, son and uh, has a younger son that they adopted. And, uh, you know, he's taught them basketball. He's taught them soccer. He's taught them uh, uh, baseball. And, and uh, his wife, uh, Ted, I remember when his name's Ted. Ted was uh, a youth minister in, in Hawaii. And he, he called me. He said, hey, Leah and I are getting married. And uh, he said, will you come out and do the wedding? And I said, well, I'll, I'll have to pray about it. I said, are you paying for the ticket? And he said, yeah. I said, well, God says yes. And uh, so I got to go out and do that wedding. And, we, and we've just, just stayed very close friends. And just uh, last year, I think it was, I went out to California to preach in his church. And, and so we could spend time together. Whenever he comes home to Greensboro, he flies in and out of Charlotte. I always drive up, you know, just to meet him for a meal, just to hang out. Well, two weeks ago, uh, Ted called me. He said, tell me what it was like when you had cancer. I said, oh, no. I said, well, you know, this is what I went through. He said, he said well, something's going on. I said, all right. And they're going to do a bunch of tests. I said, all right, we, we got this. We'll start praying. And... Um, so we prayed, and I've stayed in touch, and then he called me. He said, well, it's not good. I said, what's up? He said, um, well, it's, it's everywhere. And uh, he said, They've, they said, if I do nothing, I've got six months. I said, wow, didn't want to hear that. He said, if I go through treatments, maybe I've got a year. And he, I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm, I'm going to fight for the sake of my kids and for my wife. I said, all right. And I, I was just astounded at how quickly the cancer, I mean, to the point a week ago, he was playing four full court basketball to where a few, you know, just a week later, he could barely talk on the phone. That's how quick. And... You know, he, he's telling me, he says, you know, I, I just, I need you to tell me what to do. So we've talked through some things and, and, uh, but what he needs now while he's at the worst, he needs my prayers, my prayers for him and his strength for his kids. And I've been talking to his oldest son cause he and I are close and and because he'll tell you, you know, Thaddeus will say, yeah, my dad's my best friend. You know, how many 12th graders would say that? And his wife, she, she's a drummer in their church like Mary is. And, and uh, so they've, 
But it, it's, it's, he needs a friend to pray. So I can stay busy entertaining myself or I can pray the serious prayers, the deep prayers, the agonizing prayers. When's the last time you prayed an agonizing prayer for the salvation of a friend. That's what Jesus prayed. He was praying for you. And praise God, he said yes. You know, Jesus... The Bible tells us later in Matthew when the disciples felt like they had to defend Jesus when they came to arrest him, Jesus said, you guys, you still, you still don't get it. Don't you understand there's more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a Roman legion was 6,000. So maybe 12 legions of angels was 72,000, but he says more than. So it was probably more than 72,000 angels were just ready at any moment. All Jesus had to do would say, come, and they'd be there in an instant. Then you got to remember back in uh, 2 Kings 19, it tells us about one angel, just one angel, that in one night he killed 185,000 men of the enemy's army. One angel. So imagine what 72,000 plus angels, what kind of army that would be. So don't think Jesus needed help. The victory was won in Gethsemane. The victory was won in his prayer closet. And that's where the victory is won for you. It's when you're on your knees before holy God. That's where the victory's won. The cross was implementing the victory from Golgotha, from Gethsemane. You know, human nature has not changed We still struggle. And even today, Jesus is praying. He's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And if he's still praying, even now, he was praying for you in that garden. Now he's praying for you 24-7. If he's praying for you now, our lives need to reflect that. And I want to tell you, just like the angels, angel came and ministered to Jesus in his struggle, God's Holy Spirit and his angels will minister to you today. But that ministering happens in the prayer closet. That's where it happens. So who are you praying for? Who are you praying for?